According to the news, unemployment in Tennessee is higher than it's been in over 20 years. And yet, at the same time, a USA Today article points out that lottery sales continue to rise. In fact, it said that for the first quarter of this fiscal year, instant lottery sales are up $8 million in Tennessee. Now, how is it that those two numbers are rising at the same time? How is it that folks are getting worse off financially than buying more lottery tickets? To me, what that says is, is that in our society today and in all that we've got going on around us, we've got a lot of fears. We've got some distresses and some despair and some hopelessness. We've got some discouragement. We've got struggles. Insecurity. But at the same time, we want hope and security and contentment and serenity and peace and joy. The problem is, all too often, we're looking in the wrong places to get those things. We're hoping that we'll get some kind of lucky break. We're longing for some kind of quick fix. We desire some kind of escape. It will allow us to get away from the reality and not have to deal with that. If you're here this morning and you're hurting, if you're here and you're broken, if you're here and you've lost hope, if you're here and you've got despair, you've got struggle, fear, anxiety, I want to share with you a story of hope. I want to share with you a story of healing. I want to share with you a story of victory and a story of freedom. A story of a man who was bound and broken and defeated and hopeless. But because of his contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, he was healed and delivered. That story is found in John chapter 5, verse 1 through 17, that Brother Phil just read to us. One of the great things about the stories of the miracles in the New Testament, I think, I think every single one of them is a metaphor for our lives. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. I believe that every single one of them happened. I believe they happened as they were said. I believe those miraculous events occurred. But I believe that they're revealed to us not just to let us know that some man who was crippled got healed miraculously by Jesus. It's here to let us know about us and our world and our need for freedom and deliverance and hope. I want to share with you what I've learned about hope from this crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. Before we look at that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God, the sovereign ruler of the universe. We know, Father, that you are with us and that you care for us and that you lift us up, and we are so thankful for that. Father, we know that deliverance and freedom and hope are only found in you and in your Son and your Spirit. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, with your love, with your word. Help us to let that govern and guide us so that we can honor and glorify you, so that we might have hope, that we might have serenity, that we might have peace and joy and contentment and fulfillment and meaning, even while we're here in this life. Father, help us to carry that message to many others, that they can find that freedom is in you. Father, forgive us for the times when we've fallen short on that, for the times that we followed our own paths, for the times that we thought that our way worked best. 
Help us to overcome that, Father. Help us to turn away from the tempter. Do not incline our hearts to evil, but incline our hearts to your righteous path. We pray, Father, that you strengthen and lift us up. We also pray that everything we do here this morning will be in accordance with your will and will glorify you. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us be the glory, but unto you and to your name for the sake of your loving kindness and for your steadfastness. We love you, Father, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son we pray these things. Amen. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, of course, we learn about this, this crippled man who's sitting beside the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus comes to him and asks him, do you want to be healed? And he says, well, you know, nobody here will put me in that pool. And then Jesus just says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And amazingly enough, that's exactly what this fellow did. I want to share with you some things that I learned from this passage. And I hope that it will provide you with hope and a path for deliverance and healing and recovery. The very first thing that I recognize is that the world is full of broken people. According to verse 1, at the Feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Jesus came up to Jerusalem for the feast, probably the Passover. And while he was there, he came into this pool called Bethesda. And there are five colonnades there. And all around this pool, there are folks who are crippled. They're lame. They're paralyzed. They're blind. They're hurting. They're bound. They're held captive by what they're facing in this life. That's really our world. That's a picture of our world, though most folks don't realize it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, Jesus revealed that when he saw the crowds, as he traveled from city to city, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. Sheep without shepherds. That's what's going on in the world. That's that's what's out in the world. That's what it's like outside of Jesus Christ. Harassed, helpless, hurting, broken, despair, discouragement. Sheep who need a shepherd to guide them. Sheep who need nourishment, who need support. But the reason I wanted you to notice this is not just to talk about the world out there, but because if you're here and you're broken, if you're here and you're hurting, it's very easy to think that you're the only one. It's very easy to think that everybody else has it all together. It's very easy to look around, especially like this morning. I mean, look, we're all dressed up nice. We've got our ties and suits and dresses on, and, and we're looking as good as we can look, and we're all smiling, and, and nobody's admitting to the fight that they had this morning before they came, and, and nobody's talking about the sin that they committed yesterday that they're struggling over. Everybody here looks like everything's wonderful. All we know is what's going on inside of us. And so we look around at everybody else and our insides don't match up to their outsides. And it's very easy for us to think we're the only ones. This picture that Jesus presents here, that the Word provides for us, this is the world. This is what's going on around us. Broken people everywhere. Folks discouraged and hurting and struggling in need of a shepherd to guide and save and deliver and free. But the second thing I recognize from this is that many broken people are looking for lucky breaks. They're looking for quick fixes. They're looking for quick escapes to get out of the struggles that they're facing. 
The text tells us that in these five roof colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain set seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, I do have to share with you, there's some legitimate question about this passage. There's some ancient manuscripts that actually don't have the part in there about the angel touching the, the pool and folks who stepped in being healed. And so there's some disagreement. We're not 100% sure. Is this God's revelation that this miracle actually occurred? Or was this some scribal addition that's made it into some of the manuscripts to explain to us the legend that had come around the pool? But for our purposes, that doesn't really matter. Lots of folks want to get bogged down in that sort of thing. The reality is it doesn't change anything about our point this morning. Why are these folks around this pool? Because they hope they might be that one lucky person who would get in the water the first when they saw it stir, and they might get their lucky break. Then they'd have their deliverance. Then they'd have their healing. Then they'd have their serenity and their peace and their joy and their contentment and meaning and fulfillment. But at most, that's one person. Out of the multitudes, one person is going to get that. We don't even know how often this supposedly occurred. And think about it. The ones who would need it the most... The ones who had the greatest difficulties, they would be the least likely to be able to actually get it. Could you imagine those folks listening there as blind? They can't watch the water to see when it moves. Sure, they can walk. They would be the ones most likely to be able to walk and get in as opposed to the paralyzed man. But they can't even see the water. They have to wait till they start hearing people trying to get in. They're already two steps behind at that point. The folks who would most need it as they're relying on this lucky break, are the ones who are even least likely to be able to accomplish it and to get it. Broken people are looking for lucky breaks. They have financial fears, they want to win the lottery. They have relationship troubles, they keep looking for that perfect someone out there who's going to fix everything in their lives. They have sorrows, they want to drink them away. They have struggles, they want to shoot up and soar above them looking for lucky breaks and escape. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 talks about that. In the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, the wisest man who ever lived wrote, this is Ecclesiastes 2, 2 verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. What was his reward? Verse 11. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All was vain. It was vanity. It was useless. Everything I did, it was useless. I was looking for an escape. I was looking for meaning. I was looking for fulfillment. And it was all like trying to grab the wind. I remember as a kid when I would rake leaves. And... When I was a kid, you couldn't just shove them up to the corner. Some places I've been now, you can put them on the curb and the vacuum will come by and suck them up. But where I was, you actually had to bag them up. And the trash people would pick them up. And I remember getting those leaves out there and I'd get the bag and it would start getting windy. And I'd think, oh, this could make like a balloon or something. I'd run and try to catch the wind and close up the bag. And you know what happened to the bag every time? It would just pretty much go flat. Because that's what it's like to catch the wind. You can't catch the wind. Solomon says that is what these lucky breaks and quick fixes are for. What did he, what did he use? He, he looked for folly, pleasure, alcohol, work, projects, drinking, sex, money. All those things are mentioned there. He said, I pursued all of these things, trying to find my fix, trying to find my escape, trying to find my meaning. And what did he find? Every single bit of it was useless. Broken people are looking for lucky breaks, quick fixes, and escapes. But they don't work. They just don't work. And yet we keep going back to that pool. We keep going back thinking, this time, this time I'll be the one. I'll get in the pool. This time I'll get it. And it just doesn't work. The other thing I notice here is that these lucky break seekers are selfish. When Jesus asked the man there in John chapter 5 if he wanted to be healed in verse 6, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. I can't get in the pool. Nobody's going to help me. I don't have anyone to help me. How can he say that? There's a multitude of people around him. It just said that there were multitudes in these roof colonnades. How could this man say he had no one to help him? Because when people are seeking lucky breaks, they're not out to help each other. When people are broken and looking for the lucky break and the escape and the quick fix, what they see is that if you get a lucky break, if you get a fix, if you get an escape, you're taking mine away. And so it becomes a competition. And can't you imagine when somebody noticed that the pool was stirred, there was no getting in line. There was no let's help the guy who's been here the longest. There was no let's get the guy in here who needs it the most. There was clawing, there was grabbing, there was pushing, there was throwing, because I've got to be the one that gets in there. That's what life is like when we're broken. That's what life is like when we're seeking the lucky breaks. And isn't that our world? Isn't that what our world looks like? People competing to try to get to the top because if you get there first, you've taken theirs? Sadly, isn't that what we look like sometimes? Because we're afraid if everybody else gets it, we won't. Lucky break seekers are selfish people. But if we want healing, we've got to get past our selfishness. We've got to get past looking for the lucky breaks, the quick fixes, the easy escapes, because those don't work. But here's where it begins. 
You actually have to want healing. One of the most interesting things here is that when Jesus comes up to this man, as he's laying around this pool, he knows that the guy's been there a long time. He knows that he's been coming down there. He sees that he's an invalid, that he's crippled, that he's paralyzed, whatever the problem with this man is. It kind of seems like a dumb question, doesn't it? Do you want healing? Well, duh. And yet Jesus asked the question. Because Jesus understands one thing. If we want healing through Him, if we're going to get healing through Him, we actually have to want it. And the problem is, there's a whole lot of people that don't really want healing. They'll complain about what's going on in life. They'll whine and they'll grumble and they'll moan, but they don't really want healing. They don't want deliverance. They don't want victory and freedom. Maybe they've just gotten used to what's going on. Maybe they don't realize what they need. I think about Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, we read the story of the prodigal son. You probably know this story. In verse 11 of Luke 15, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Guys, don't you know that a young son who goes to his father and says, I've got to have my inheritance now, that's a broken man. There's a man that's hurting and struggling. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want you to look at this fellow. When he went to his father and said, I want my inheritance, he's a broken man, but he didn't want any healing. When he got the money and went off into the far country, he was a broken man. But he didn't want any healing. As he squandered his money in reckless and riotous and prodigal living, he's a broken man. But he doesn't want any healing. When he has gotten rid of all that money and he's destitute, he's a broken man. But he still didn't want any healing. When the famine struck, he was a broken man. And he still didn't want healing. When he hires on with the citizen of that far country, he's a broken man, and he still doesn't want healing. When he begins to work among the pigs, he's a broken man, and he still doesn't want healing. The fact is, there's just a lot of people that just don't want healing yet because they, they just don't know how much they need. But finally, this man hit rock bottom, and one day he recognized it. We could see it all the way up at that beginning verse. We could see, this guy's got problems. He needs help. He needs freedom. He needs victory. He needs deliverance. But he didn't see it. He thought he was getting his fix. He thought he was getting his escape. He got his dad's inheritance, and he went off and he had fun with it. And even still, he didn't see it. But then one day, as he lay in the bottom, eating the scraps the pigs left behind, then he realized, I need something. 
You know, that's the struggle with so many today. We just don't even know what we actually need. And so Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, Jesus said of those who are in the Laodicean church, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You want to know what is most sad to me this morning as I present this lesson as I've studied it? What's most sad is not that there are people in the audience here this morning that are hurting and broken. What's most sad is not that there are people in this audience who because of their hurt and their brokenness have sought for a fix through sex or through drugs or through alcohol or through money or or through whatever else. What's most sad is that there's people here this morning that are poor, wretched, blind, naked, and miserable, and don't even know it. You think you're rich, you're prospered, and you need nothing. And you don't know how much healing you need. We're going to be delivered by Jesus. We've got to want healing. When we want healing, then we can move to the next thing we learn, and that is we've got to recognize our own inability. Once we finally realize, I'm broken and I need something, I need need to be fixed. I need something to improve, some deliverance, some freedom from all this that's going on in my life and in my world. Once we recognize that and want that, the next thing we've got to understand, I can't do it. Why did Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 5 go to a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years who in verse 6 said he already knew he'd been there a long time? Why didn't he just go to the first person he saw? Why didn't he go to one of the newest people that were there? I'll tell you why. Because the new poolside residents, they still had some hope in the pool. They still had faith that they would be the one that would get in. They still had the idea that the lucky break was going to work for them, that somehow they'd get into that pool and they'd have healing all on their own. Jesus found a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years, who'd been beside this pool for who knows how long. He found a man that understood, you know, I'm sitting here, but it's not doing any good. I know it's not going to work. I can't get there. Nobody's going to help me get there. I can't do this. In fact, isn't that what he said? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. While I'm going, another steps down before me. This man understood, I just can't do it. I'm not going to get the healing on my own. We need to have that kind of poverty of spirit. Matthew chapter 5. And verse 3, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, it said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word for poor is the idea of poverty-stricken, of begging and pleading and needing. This is not the person who's just having trouble making ends meet at the end of the month. This is the person that if they don't go out on the street and start begging people for something, they're going to starve that day. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand, I can't do it. I don't need just a little help. I don't need God just to push me over the edge. I can't get there. I can't have healing. I can't have deliverance. I can't have freedom unless I turn to God. Now, that person gets the kingdom. That person gets the healing. That person gets the freedom and the meaning and the fulfillment. But as long as we have the idea that somehow we can do it, it's not going to work. In Romans chapter 7, we see Paul express this. Paul of all people, the guy that we think had it all together, who had it all under control. If anybody worked his way into heaven, it would be Paul. But notice what he says in Romans 7 and verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, I can't do it. He said, every time I make a commitment and I'm going to be righteous enough, I fall. It's like sin's taken over. I'm paralyzed, I'm crippled, I'm blind, I'm lame spiritually. And sin's got control. And every time I try to rely on me to get deliverance and victory and overcome, I fail. I can't do it. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Not me. Jesus. Jesus is going to do it. As long as I have the idea that if I just try harder, as long as I have the idea that if I just keep, if I just make all the right choices, as long as that I, I have that idea, I'm always going to be struggling. But when I begin to realize I can't do it, then I can take the step that says I'm just going to do what Jesus says. Jesus can do it. If I just lean on the Lord, if I just take His word, I'll have deliverance. I want you to put yourself in this man's shoes. You've been an invalid for 38 years. You haven't walked for 38 years. You've not been able to carry a load for 38 years. And this guy that you don't even know walks up to you and says, do you want to be healed? And you tell him, I can't get in the pool. And he says, that's okay. Take your bed up and walk. What do you do with that man? I tell you what you do with that man. You laugh at that man. That guy's obviously ridiculous. Doesn't he know I've been laying here for years? I haven't walked in 38 years. And you walk up to me and say, get up, take up my bed and walk? Yet what did the man do? He didn't laugh at Jesus. He got up. He took up his bed. And he walked. Brothers and sisters, I know in the context of the story, he didn't know exactly who Jesus was. But the point I want you to see is that he did what Jesus said. And when he did what Jesus said, he was healed. You don't have to know everything about Jesus. But if you do what Jesus says, you'll get healing. This is really the point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate in Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus here is not saying, if you want to be good enough to go to heaven, you've got to walk my narrow way. What Jesus is saying is, the only way to get deliverance is to do what I say. We can't earn our way to healing. It's not, boy, I've obeyed Jesus enough and by my strength I've walked on the narrow path enough and now God owes me healing. What Jesus is saying is, look, there's only one way. If you want healing, you've got to get up, take up your bed and walk. You've got to just do what I tell you. That's what this man did. And that's what we need to do.
But we also need to recognize that Jesus won't always deliver us the way we expect. Jesus may not deliver us the way we expect. Think about what this man said to Jesus. When Jesus said, do you want to be healed? The man didn't just say, oh yes, I desperately want to be healed. The man said, I I have no one to put me in the pool. You know, the problem is this man had been so focused for so long on his lucky break, his quick fix, and his escape, that when he turned to Jesus to get healing, he expected Jesus to do it that way. What's he saying here? When he says to Jesus, nobody will put me in the pool, what do you think he's asking Jesus? He's asking Jesus, would you hang out here with me for a while and when you see the water stirred, get me in there? That's what he's asking Jesus to do. But Jesus didn't do that. That's sometimes our problem. Sometimes our problem is is that we're so focused on our lucky break that even when we turn to Jesus, we expect him to deliver us through a lucky break. We've got financial fears. We don't turn to Jesus and just say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to turn my life over to you. We say, Jesus, would you help me win the lottery? We expect him to deliver us through the lucky break. Instead of just turning to Jesus and say, Jesus, whatever it is that you want, that's what I'm going to do. Let you deliver me your way. I need healing. I'm just going to do what you say. Let's not put Jesus within the box of our expectations. Let's just turn our lives over to him and just do whatever he says. Because he's not going to deliver us likely the way we expect him to. And if we keep trying to put our expectations on that, we're not going to get the deliverance. We're going to continue struggling. You know, the problem is, when we think about this, we struggle with this. Don't tell me turn to Jesus, some of us are saying. Don't tell me turn to Jesus. That's ridiculous. He's not real. He doesn't help. And I know that I can't just convince you just by me saying it, but let me just share with you, you've tried everything else. Why not try Jesus? Why not just examine him? You know what? If you try Jesus and you turn to Jesus and just do what he says and it still doesn't work, you're not any worse off. But others are saying, don't, don't tell me to turn to Jesus. Don't tell me to turn to Jesus. I've been going to church for years and that hasn't helped. See, you, you didn't hear what I said. I didn't say try church. I said try Jesus. There's a lot of people that are going to church and aren't doing what Jesus says. There's a lot of people that go to church and all they've done is given their Sundays to Jesus. They haven't given their lives to Him. And so they're not progressing. They're not growing in victory and freedom and in deliverance. And yet others are saying, don't tell me to turn to Jesus. Because I don't think He's going to give me what I want. Oh, there's a whole lot of us that think about turning our lives over to Jesus and, and we go a certain certain length, but then we get we get worried because maybe Jesus' plans for us aren't as good as our plans for us. Maybe Jesus isn't going to make us as rich as we want to be. Maybe Jesus isn't going to make us as famous as we want to be. Maybe Jesus isn't going to let us live in the house that we want to live in or drive the cars that we want to drive. But there's that part of us that says, sure, I want healing, but only if it comes with all this other stuff. And so we tell folks, don't, don't tell me to turn my life over to Jesus. If you want healing, you've got to turn it all over to Jesus. He'll deliver may not be the way that you expect. It may not come with all the accoutrements that you want. But it'll happen. And understand this, that others will try to stop you. Others will try to stop you. The man picked up his bed and walked. By the way, this is not a bed like ours that's in our bedroom. I mean, that would have been pretty impressive if he'd done that. But, but what this is, is probably more like a mat that he was able to roll up and tuck up under his arm. But, but the issue was he, was, he was able to get up and walk. And some of the Jews saw him and 
in verse 10, they said, it's a Sabbath day. It's unlawful for you to take up your bed. See, one of the laws that God had given the Jews was that they weren't allowed to do any work on Saturday or the Sabbath day. It was a day of rest. And when they saw this man carrying his bed, they saw this in their mind. All they could see is this guy's working. You notice that? They couldn't even see. that here was a man who hadn't walked in 38 years, and today he's walking. This man just said, look, all I know is the guy who told me to get up and take up my bed, he healed me, and so I did what he said. Yeah, that's all he could see. But these guys, they were so bound up in their interpretations of God's rules that they couldn't even see the amazing miracle that it accomplished here. And so they tried to stop the man. Just need to understand this. If you're going to totally give your life over to Jesus, there's going to be people that, that start mocking you and making fun of you. Nobody should have to be that extreme. Why, well, you think you're the only ones that can have healing. They'll say all kinds of things to get us to stop and get us to turn away. But you need to understand that half measures avail nothing. Jesus can provide deliverance and will if you'll just do what He says. Don't let folks stop. And the final thing is, Jesus gave the man a plan. He said to him, go and sin no more. When Jesus found him, in John chapter 5, found him in the temple in verse 14, said to him, see you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The problem is, there are a whole lot of people that start working on a path of healing and recovering in Christ and and they start overcoming and they start having victory and they start gaining some serenity, some peace, some contentment, some meaning in life. And after a while, it's like they have the idea that I've got it fixed now. I've got this under control. And they end up just going right back to where they had been before. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you've turned your life over to Jesus and you've started gaining that freedom from Him, and it's a progressive thing. But then someday you think, all right, I'm fixed, I've got it, my life is good now, I can start doing things on my own again. You're going to fall. Now, I understand that in the biblical context, when Jesus says to this man, go and sin no more, He's not saying that the only way for us to have deliverance is to never ever sin again. Be perfect from now on out. I know that's not what he's saying. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 demonstrates that Christianity is a growth process. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And then in verse 8 it says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, our virtue is increasing. Our self-control is increasing. Our godliness is increasing. That means today we don't have it all. We're making some mistakes today. But tomorrow we're going to do better. That's the one place where a lot of these healing stories kind of break down in the parallel because these healings, a lot of them happen just like that. And our spiritual healing is a progressive thing. I know that. But understand, the plan is, when I come into Christ, I've got to stay there. Every day, no matter how good my life gets, I've got to take every day and say, today is about Jesus and it's not about me. And when I do that, I'll continue in deliverance and freedom and contentment. It may not look like what the world wants. It may not look like what everybody else is asking for. But I'll know that I've got the serenity, the peace, the contentment, the joy, the meaning. And when that happens, I won't have to win the lottery to be having a good day.
I'll have won everything I need. Are you hurting and broken this morning? I tell you there's only one place to turn. And that's Jesus Christ. And it won't happen that today you just turn your life over and from now on out everything is wonderful. It's a growth process and it's progress. But I guarantee you start turning your life over to Jesus today. And you'll start realizing that progress and that victory and that deliverance and that freedom and that healing.